1: We like to be around winners, we like to work with winners, we like to be friends with winners, we like winners and that is because we know unconsciously that that could activate our feedback loop to win. Mm. So what I mean by that is University of British Columbia did a research study on athletes. And they studied athletes around the world. They also studied congenitally blind athletes, athletes who've been blind since birth. And they found that across races, genders, um, athletes make the exact same body language when they win or lose a race. So pride body language, very specifically, is when people take up as much space as possible. They tilt their head up towards the sky. They open their arms wide. If you want to do it with me, I'm doing it now. You can get a little start your feedback loop. They will jump up into the air or firmly plant their feet. It's as if they're saying, I feel good in the world, and so I want to take up more space in it. Whereas defeated athletes, and this is the body language of defeat and shame or losing body language, is when they take up as little space as possible. They roll their shoulders in. They tilt their chin towards their chest. They usually will grip their hands in a fist or a clenched um, fashion. They even will stand or sit in, the, in, in a fetal position. And this is the universal gesture of shame. So what happens is when we first see someone in that first few seconds, we're very quickly trying to decide who do you look more like, a winner or a loser? And all we're looking at, and there is differences with with even walking and bio motion lab has done studies on this, that we can pick up how prideful someone feels based on how much space they are taking up and how much movement they have, which then cues us to say, Ooh, winner. I want to be like winner. I go near winner, right? Like it's a very, it's like a very caveman part of our brain. And so that's why the dressing is actually more important for you than for them.
4: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Vanessa, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it is really, really cool to have you here. You know, you and I have met through mutual friends. We had a dinner at a a mutual author dinner for Penguin Authors when we were at WDS. And, you know, I wanted to interview you for quite some time, and uh, I knew that you had a book coming out. So I'm actually very happy that we waited because you've packed this book with so much insight and info. But before we get into that, I want to ask a question that I think is very relevant to the work that you do um, that I found has been very revealing and interesting. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that end up influencing the work that you do today.
1: <laughs> I was a hundred percent the student council nerd. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Election, mm-hmm. but um, I was sort of the A-type, very highly neurotic, didn't have many friends. <laughs> Um, that was my, if you can call that a social group, I guess that was my group. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I think community service rep or, um, a class president a couple of times. And that was sort of my comfort zone, um, that mm-hmm. those are the people I hung out with.
2: Mm-hmm. So it, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I think that it, I've never been asked it in that way of like, what social group were you part of and how has it informed your work today? I think that, um, it was my comfort zone and it's still my comfort zone. Like what I do for a living is teaching, you know, it's a lot of conferences. You could not find me in a nightclub. (laughs) (laughs) You could, you could not persuade me to go to a music concert. I don't even think, do people call it music concert? That's probably, no, a concert. See, I don't even know. I don't even know the lingo guys. I don't even know the lingo. Um, uh, And and it's the same way. So I think that um, I'm comfortable in the learning environment, but I get really uncomfortable with social situations, which is why I have all these hacks, because Uh it's the only way I can get through.
2: (laughs) So why do you think it is that you took your discomfort and you turned it into something that has effectively turned, you know, given you a career and a life that probably was far out of, of what you'd imagined was possible? And why do you think some people are not capable of that?
1: Yeah, so I realized very early on that I had I felt I felt I had been sort of misled. And I was told by teachers and parents and adults, if you get a good GPA, if you study really hard, you'll be successful. Mm-hmm. And so I I follow that advice very closely. I, I didn't make friends in high school and college. I never went out. I dove into the books and I was very focused on the technical skills, right? Like the, the GPA, the, those, the IQ, but what I was not told. And I think where I was misled is people said, oh, you know, you'll pick up people's skills along the way. Um, you know, just, just be yourself. I got these sort of platitudes. And what I realized very, very um, all of a sudden in college was that if I didn't catch up my people skills to my technical skills, there was no way that I could ever show off my technical skills
6: uh-huh.
1: because I didn't know how to interview. I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't know how to interact at a conference. I didn't know how to give an elevator pitch. And so, so no matter how technically brilliant you are, if you don't have that other side, you just, you miss out on all these on, on that, um, on the ability to share. Uh-huh. So that was sort of, um, I felt like there has to be more information on that side of the fence.
2: So walk me through, um, you know, post-college to how you end up doing this work. Like what's been the trajectory and, and you know, how did it all lead to this? Of all
1: yeah. Um, I I think, um, I actually came from, I came at it from a a business plan perspective. So when I was in college, my mom, bless her, she's a, she's a lawyer. And she said to me, no, Vanessa, I never was told about alternate careers. I was sort of told, you know, you'd be a doctor, you'd be a lawyer, you'd be an accountant, you know, the kind of the typical job. She said, you know, I, I don't want that for you. I want you to think about something else. So she signed me up for this money seminar. (laughs) And I I think it was a T Harv Ecker seminar, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. It was like one of those free weekends. Uh Um, And she signed me up for it. And I'm like, mom, what is this? She's like, you know, you just just go, just try to have a different different, um, career choice than me. And it was the first time I remember it really distinctly. I still have the original notes from it. It was the first time I was ever introduced to the concept of passive income. And I think I was like 19 at the time, and they were at that at that time they were talking about like vending machine businesses, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which I I didn't get into vending machine businesses, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was very hooked on this idea of um, setting up a a passive income or a a revenue sustaining business. And so from that point on in college, I was thinking about um, information products. I started my first business in college, which was originally. um, a parenting blog. So I was writing a bunch of, uh, I had a bunch of teenagers who were writing advice to their parents and the passive income product was seminars and webinars for parents. It was very, very interesting business model. It actually worked. Um, we got some really popular viral articles written by teenagers and, um, but that was when I stumbled into the problem of, I can't pitch myself. Uh So I was able to write all these articles. But when it actually came to public speaking, showing up, going on media, like we were getting media hits and I oh my gosh, if I showed you some of these clips, I've, i hope hoped that they are never going to be surfaced ever <laughs> again. <laughs> I hope, I hope they will disappear and never be shown. But, um, that's when I, I was getting a lot of feedback of like, you need media training, you need people training. And I was like, where does one get people training? Like, how does that work? There was no classes for me to take on that. And that's, and that, and that seed was kind of what ended up, um, me starting the science of people.
2: Uh, so, you know, I am curious, um, how you've gone about choosing to study the various things that you have from a research perspective, like what prompts your, you know, decisions about what you want to learn about, um, what aspect of human behavior you choose and how you design all of these studies. Because I think the the sheer volume of research that you've done about this was what just blew my mind as I, go, I went through the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, everything is usually based on a puzzle. So I'm obsessed with puzzles. I love um, contradictions, things that don't make sense. And so oftentimes I read all the latest academic journals. You know, I, I follow very closely any, all the new, newly published research. And what I like to do is look for a nugget of something that's interesting, but is, has very, has been very limited, looked at in a very limited way in an academic sense of view. So For example, a lot of academic studies are on like 36 college freshmen, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and like, it's like a really interesting study, but it's on barely any people. And it's all about, you know, one demographic freshman at a Ivy League school. And so, for example, there was one study that I read about, um, it was by, I think, um, Nalini Ambadi, and it was looking at um, pictures of CEOs, And what she did in this study, very interesting, is she had people look at pictures of CEOs and try to guess how successful they were. And people could accurately guess where they fell on the Fortune 1000 list just based on their headshot.
6: Mm
1: -hmm. I thought, okay, this is a really interesting study. but puzzle. Does this actually work in real life? Like, Does this work beyond CEOs, beyond the Fortune 1000 list? So we took that nugget and we turned it into a research experiment for our lab. And so in our lab, we love big data, like lots of numbers um, with a big variety of people, like not the same demographic. So I took that study and we replicated it with Twitter pictures. So we picked... Um, three women, three men, uh, one had a thousand followers, one had a hundred followers, one had a thousand followers, one had 10,000 followers. Mm. And we had people do the exact same thing. Can you guess who is the most popular? And we were able to repeat that research, which then had all these other implications of how do you pick your Twitter profile picture? How do you pick your online dating profile picture? How do you pick your LinkedIn profile picture? What are the patterns? And so typically the research comes from these like nuggets in academia with some kind of real life puzzle. Mm.
2: So I'm sure the question that is on a lot of people's mind is how do you pick those pictures?
1: (laughs) <laughs> so there are, um, there are really interesting patterns. So and they're, and they're a little bit different for men and women. So we can, do you want to kind of guess, do you want to play with me to see yeah. if you can guess what they are? Absolutely. Okay. So hopefully listeners can guess too. So, um, what is better to smile or not to smile? And I'm going to specifically gear this towards, um, uh, like dating profile pictures, just because it's a little bit easier to study those. So this is not for LinkedIn necessarily. This is for, uh, dating profile pictures to smile or not to smile. To smile. So men actually do much better when they have a neutral face and yep. And women do better only if they smile with the full smile. So not a closed mouth smile, um, closed mouth smiles for both genders did terribly. (laughs) So you never want to have a, a, that closed mouth smile. Um, so it was almost like, uh, don't, don't go somewhere in the middle. If you're going to smile, smile big. Mm -hmm. Um, and then men with a neutral face did really well with female Raiders.
2: Okay. Interesting. Um, Um, In terms of the neutral face, I'm curious, do you have to be looking at the camera uh, for the, the picture?
1: Yes, so eye contact was a big one, so um that's actually called fronting when we're talking about nonverbal um fronting is how um your torso your head, your torso, and your toes are angled. so we like when people front us we like to have direct um, alignment or congruency with people, mm-hmm. and the same thing happened in photos so when people were like looking off into the sunset or um you know angled their body away in sort of a side profile shot, those did not do as well and I think that as humans, if you talk about like the human behavior aspect, I think that something about it makes us feel like we're not being seen or heard, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you're looking at someone as a potential mate, you don't want to feel like someone is going to dismiss you or you're a side thought. Mm -hmm. And so we much prefer the neutral face looking right into the camera. Fronting does matter. Wow. <laughs>
6: okay.
1: Um, how about, how about the biggest buzzkill? So there was, um, a single item that when it appeared in a photo for both men and women, it destroyed their attractiveness ratings.
2: Really? Okay. What yeah. is it?
1: Can you guess? I have no idea. <laughs> it was the sunglasses. So anytime sunglasses appeared in a shot. And by the way, the second, second prop in here was a hat and we thought and the problem is a lot of people actually in their dating profile pictures will have this because they 're outside they 're at the beach they 're traveling um, but I think this has to do with a very um, instinctive part of ourselves that wants oxytocin mm-hmm. um, you know oxytocin is the chemical of bonding it makes us feel the warm and fuzzies we love it um, and we we produce oxytocin when we have eye contact. This even happens through camera lenses uh, there was one study that looked at video conferencing and when we feel like someone's making eye contact with us even through video con- con- video conferencing and that's so funny because we know they're not with us it mm-hmm. still produces oxytocin so um sunglasses were a real buzzkill and hats i think similar like feeling like someone's not looking at us or being exposed to us
2: interesting Well, I I think that that makes a a perfect setup to transition into what I want to spend the rest of our time um, talking about, which is, you know, what you call the hidden rules to human behavior. And I know you broke up the book into like three core areas. So um, let's do a deep dive into each one of these. Let's focus on the first five minutes of uh, an interaction with another person.
1: Yeah. um, So it was really when I had to think about the framework for people skills. And I, I did try to make it like a Computer programming guide, right? Mm-hmm. Like very black and white, not not fuzzy. Um, this was the best way I could think of to to break up interaction. I think that in most interactions, you have the first five minutes, which is when you decide: Do I like this person? Do I trust this person? Do I want to level up with them? You know, does, does a cold contact become a warm contact? Does an acquaintance become a friend? Then you have the um, the first five hours, and that's when like people decide: Yeah, I would love to go on a date with this person. So mm-hmm. they. They ask them on a date, or yeah, I would love to get you know. Let's set up a coffee meeting, or the pitch worked in the first five minutes. Let's uh, let's bring you into the office. Um, the last one is the first five days, which is when you really have partnerships, relationships. Um, and I, the first five minutes is where we have to start, and that is because of a common misconception. And I had this misconception for many, many years. Uh, For my introverts listening, I'm actually an ambivert. I hop between introversion and extroversion. So for my introverts and my ambiverts, we like to believe that our first impression happens the moment we start speaking. But the problem is our first impression actually happens the moment someone first sees us. And that is a huge distinction that we often miss. For example, you think about speakers taking the stage, they often rehearse their speech to a T like they have it nailed, they have the perfect verbal pitch and transitions from slides, but they don't think about their entrance. But they don't think about those first few seconds of taking the stage or walking into the room or setting up their computer or, you know, a conference or networking event. You think about your perfect elevator pitch. You think about your perfect conversation starter. But you rarely think about checking in at the name tag table, hanging up your coat, you know, getting a drink. Actually, those moments are far more important in the first few minutes than um, having the perfect thing to say later. And so that's why I tried to anchor that first, because I think it's overlooked.
2: So, two questions come from that. One, what impact uh, does the way that you dress have on that? And mm-hmm. what are the keys to making a first uh, great impression? Like, how do you actually end up, you know, uh, managing, like, how do you, you alter that to your benefit?
1: Yeah, so um, so ornaments. So when we talk about um, first impressions, we're talking about nonverbal and verbal. So we have um, the, the the body language, the facial expressions, the voice tone, which is also nonverbal, um, and ornaments. So jewelry, hair, clothes, colors, bags. Um, and the other side of that, the second part is the verbal, which is the, the conversation starter, um, engagement, introduction, name use. So you split them up into two different areas. Okay. Actually, ornaments and clothes are a much smaller percent than you would think, which is crazy because usually we agonize. So I don't know about you, but I agonize Mm -hmm. over my outfit, the hair, the shoes. The good news is is that actually matters a lot less. The hard part about this is the the best color to to wear, the best color that you could wear is confidence. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if you feel uncomfortable in your clothes, that actually comes across in micro expressions, micro messages, and micro gestures. A very specific example of this is I was doing an interview with a woman um, and I loved her resume. We had a phone interview. It went really great. Had her come into the lab, sat down with her, and instantly I was just rubbed a little wrong. I was like uncomfortable. There was We were off. like we, You know when you're talking to someone and you're like kind of interrupting each other and Like you can't find that cadence Mm -hmm. that was happening. And I'm like, what happened? Like this was, this was going to go so well. So we ended the interview early. I thought about it a few days. I was like, you know, I'm going to bring her back in, like just in case she was real nervous or it was a bad day. So I brought her back in. And this time it was different, totally different. She was so much more at ease. We were flowing, we were going. And I said to her, Last time, was something going on? Like, were, were you having a bad day? Because that interview was really awkward. And she said, you know, I borrowed my, my uh, roommate's outfit and shoes for that. I dressed up. I didn't own a suit. And I also wore heels. And I was really uncomfortable. And I felt really overdressed because we're very casual. We were, in, we're in Portland, Oregon. And no one wears a suit here. Um, <laughs> and she's like, and I felt really overdressed. The shoes didn't fit me. And so I started to dig into the research on it and we are, our emotions are catching. We, when we stand in a room silently with someone else, we always catch the more charismatic person's emotions. And we also tend to mirror the person that we're with. So she was slightly uncomfortable. She was uncomfortable in her shoes. She was wincing. She didn't quite know how to sit because her her skirt was too tight and too short, And I was then mirroring those, I think, micro gestures where I was feeling uncomfortable but didn't know why. Uh So I think that this is – that obviously doesn't happen in every interaction. But I think that when we're uncomfortable whatever we're wearing, if we don't feel like we are, um, like, killing it with our outfit, that also (laughs) comes across in micro gestures. So my biggest challenge to you is – Anything that you feel frumpy in, anything you feel fat in, anything that you feel like is not um, your best representation, throw it away, give it away, donate it, it is not worth it.
2: It's interesting you say this because, um, you know, I I noticed this uh, like right after a speaking gig, I I happened to meet my business partner, Brian, in a coffee shop and I was dressed much better than I normally did to the coffee shop that day. And (laughs) I just noticed that everybody was looking at me different, particularly women. And I was kind of like, well, you know what? I think this is one of those very easy hacks to optimize. But it's also interesting because I can tell you that when I was dressed like that, I also felt very different internally. yes Um, I was kind of like, you know what? When I'm dressed like this, you know, to the nines, I feel like I'm up to something really important important.
1: Okay, so this is exactly it. I think that that is a positive feedback loop, right? There's this feedback loop of, I feel really good in this outfit. Mm -hmm. I'm walking more confidently. People pick up on the confidence. I see them looking at me. That makes me feel even more confident. Wow, this suit is great. I feel even better, (laughs) right? Like it's like this really nice feedback loop. And the nice thing is we are in control of that feedback loop. Uh So and the same thing happens, and I say this in the book and I know that people always get a little bit, um, it like rubs them kind of weirdly, which is we like winners. We like to be around winners, we like to work with winners, we like to be friends with winners, we like winners and that is because we know unconsciously that that could activate our feedback loop to win. <sighs> so what I mean by that is University of British Columbia did a research study on athletes And they studied athletes around the world. They also studied congenitally blind athletes, athletes who've been blind since birth. And they found that across races, genders, um, athletes make the exact same body language when they win or lose a race. So pride body language, very specifically, is when people take up as much space as possible. They tilt their head up towards the sky. They open their arms wide. If you want to do it with me, I'm doing it now. You can get a little start your feedback loop. They will jump up into the air or firmly plant their feet. It's as if they're saying, I feel good in the world, and so I want to take up more space in it. Whereas defeated athletes, and this is the body language of defeat and shame or losing body language, is when they take up as little space as possible. They roll their shoulders in. They tilt their chin towards their chest. They usually will grip their hands in a fist or a clenched um, fashion. They even will stand or sit in the in, in a fetal position. And this is the universal gesture of shame. So what happens is when we first see someone in that first few seconds, we're very quickly trying to decide, who do you look more like, a winner or a loser? And all we're looking at, and there is differences with with even walking, and BioMotion Lab has done studies on this, that we can pick up how prideful someone feels based on how much space they're taking up and how much movement they have, which then cues us to say, Ooh, winner. I want to be like winner. I go near winner, right? Like it's a very, it's like a very caveman part of our brain. And so that's why the dressing is actually more important for you than for them.
2: Interesting. All right. So that kind of takes us, you know, through the nonverbal aspect of it. Let's talk about the verbal aspect of it um, and how that translates into, you know, actually connecting with a person, uh, especially in the first five minutes.
1: Yeah. So um, this, the most important thing that we have to remember in the first five minutes of verbal is that you have a choice. You can either decide to engage in interaction on default, which is much easier. It's much safer or you can decide to disengage the default and go off road. And what I mean by that is there are a couple of questions that signal to the other person from a a purely brain perspective, this conversation will probably be the same that you've had before. So three questions. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Where are you from? How are you? Those three questions are a major social signal because they basically say to someone, stay on autopilot. (laughs) Give me your normal default answer. And people will answer on rote, right? Like they'll, they've answered that a million times before. They tell you what they did. They don't even have to think about it. And there's zero, very little brain activity. And you deliver your answer also in default. And think about it. I mean, when you hear someone say something that they've said a million times before, it sounds really boring. Like they'll say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in marketing and I've uh, been doing it for about 15 years now remember our emotions are catching so if you're bored with your own answer they are bored with that answer as well so I like to think of that as that, that's the path to small talk and I really like to think about it as how can we tr- trick that or flip that into big talk and the way that we do that is with a little chemical called dopamine so dopamine maybe you've heard of it it's the chemical of pleasure so when we when I say I have a gift for you your brain goes dopamine that that's my sound effect for dopamine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, We feel it's kind of like excitement, um, this giddiness that's dopamine uh, pumping. You can trigger dopamine. You can also trigger higher brain activation when you use excitable or sparking words. Uh So when you even, when I even say the word excited, that even that itself kind of primes you to be more excited. So my goal, if, if there's anything that comes out of the book, It would be to get people to stop asking those three questions and start asking conversation sparkers, which I think are way more fun.
2: So the one thing that I'm curious about is how you get to sort of that level of like conversation sparking questions um, with somebody that you've just met, because those kinds of questions can, you know, be almost too intimate for somebody that you've just met. So how do you find that balance?
1: Sure. Yeah. So there are different levels, right? So there are, of course, like the d- the deeper conversation starters that are, are for people that you've been talking to or friends, <laughs> right. like, you know, um, uh, um, what's a good one? Um, a deeper one would be, um, what do you daydream about? Uh-huh. Right? Like that's a, that's a kind of a deep question. You don't necessarily ask that right off the bat, but there are levels. So the more casual, non-boring starter questions are things like, um, working on anything exciting recently, uh-huh. right? Um, do you like the wine? Even that, and that's a very casual question, especially if someone's just gotten their drink from the bar. You can Then they'll say, oh, either I like it or I don't like it or I haven't tried it. And then you can get into talks about your favorite cocktails. Have you been here before? Um, uh, when you're not here, what are you doing? So I have this idea, this, this principle that if someone wants to tell you what they do, they will tell you. <laughs> if someone doesn't want to tell you what they do because they're either out of work, they're ashamed of it, or they don't feel it defines them, they will not tell you what they do. And that tells you something. Mm-hmm. So I will almost never ask those leading questions of like, what do you do? Um, You know, where do you work? Uh, What industry are you in? I will give them the opportunity to either tell me or not. And that tells me a lot. So if I say, you know, when you're not at this conference, what are you usually doing? And they can choose to tell me, either their personal passion or their work. Mm -hmm. I could say working on anything exciting recently, which could be, oh, I'm planning a big vacation with my family or their work. So those are sort of the the intro conversation starters that I think you can use that are way better than what do you do? Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at
4: BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: So how do you go from um, this initial sort of spark between two people and making a a good first impression to escalating a conversation uh, and like increasing the intimacy between two people?
1: So I think of this visually. I'm, I'm a visual learner, so I always think about it visually. Um, and I try to think of every person that you're interacting with, you have ties between the two of you. And in my book, I, I jokingly call this thread theory. I, I told my editor, I was like, it's a, it's a play on string theory. And she was like, I don't get it. <laughs> I was like, okay. That's <laughs> okay. It's okay. It's my nerdy sense of humor. So I call it thread theory, um, which is based on something that I had observed in my lab with really good conversations, it's almost like people are creating these ties between them and the other person. Uh And the way that you do this is with a very simple idea, which is the me too, right? Like, yes, I also do that. Yes, I also love that. Oh, I love that show. I'm also vegan. I also love rock climbing. Every time you say me too, it actually like links you up with that person. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is we don't always think about this as something to hunt for, and I actually think it needs to be cultivated because a lot of conversations, you leave those on the table or you run out of things to say and the conversation sort of fizzles out. If you are on the hunt for me twos, it becomes much easier to think of things to say and it helps you capitalize on whatever little excitement you're seeing in front of you from that person.
6: huh.
2: So how do you do that without necessarily just seeming like, you know, robotic and, and agreeing with everything?
1: Yeah. So um, it's it's not just agreement. And also, you don't ever want to say me too if you don't actually <laughs> feel me too. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing, and this is where, you know, it's kind of more advanced, but I think this is where you get the best relationships. This is how you get from five minutes to five hours is... Asking for the why. So, you know, the the famous Toyota principle, which uh, is talked about a lot in business, but not in social situations, is the five whys, where, you know, Toyota created this idea that with management, if there's a problem, you ask why five times to try to get to the root of the issue. I think the same thing can work outside of business and social situations. So if someone says, um, oh, my gosh, I've been totally addicted to um, House of Cards. I I just think it's like fascinating. So you could say, oh, me too, that show is so good, period. Mm-hmm. You could do that, right? Yeah. But then it's just sort of like a bunch of me toos. What you can do is ask your first why. So it, it could be, um, so why did you start watching it in the first place? And they'll say, um, you know, my my mom actually turned it on for me. Oh, are you close with your mom, right? Like Every time you ask why, and it could be a why about anything. Why do you like it? Who turned you on to it? Um, you know, why do you think that show is so popular? every why is going to get that person further away from default thinking. They have Mm -hmm. probably told others that they liked the show House of Cards, but they probably haven't talked to others about why that show seems to be a popular phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. That's a much deeper, more interesting conversation. And that's how you get someone who goes, God, I never thought about it that way. Bingo. Like that is the exact kind of interaction that you want. So I always say it's, you know, find the me twos, but then try to go into the five why's.
2: Okay, so now you know. I, I want to look at, at two things that you've talked about. Um, you know, finding the me twos, but also starting to really analyze the person that you are, are talking to. And I know you gave this really interesting uh, uh, framework and diagram of what you called the ocean. Uh, I'm curious if you could explain that to us because I, I was yeah. sort of fascinated by that.
1: Yes. Okay. So um, kind of the same thing as before. I I always like starting with the technical skills and then going to the people skills. So in college, um, a skill that was a game changer for me was speed reading. When I finally learned how to speed read, it was like, uh, I mean, just magic. I mean, all my homework got done faster. I did better on my tests. And so when I was in getting into the people skills kind of realm, I wondered Is there the equivalent for people? Like, can you speed read people? Like, does that work? Is that even a concept that works? So, I started to look in how that would work from the research um, perspective. So, like, um, looking into how do we very quickly assess someone's personality? How do we very quickly assess someone's needs? Um, How do you very quickly read someone's emotions? And there is very robust science on this. I was shocked to find there actually is a lot of information about speed reading, although it's not. Framed as speed reading. So, um, in order to make it more digestible and not like, you know, in 20 page papers filled with academic jargon, Mm -hmm. I created this little diode um, called the Matrix, which is um, a kind of cipher that I've created. And I have one for every person in my life. Um, and it's a way that I speed read personality. Um, you speed read someone's personality, you speed read someone's um, appreciation language, and you speed read someone's value language. And it's a way of using facial expressions, uh, verbal cues, as well as um, what are co- what's called behavioral residue mm-hmm. to speed read someone. It's my more advanced tip, and it takes us into the five hours, the first five hours.
2: So you mentioned personality, appreciation uh, languages and value. And I'm curious how you find those things. Um, And I'm curious how, you know, let's say that you you want the first five hours to lead to something deeper, like an intimate relationship or a a partnership of some sort. How does that actually happen?
1: So it's about... um optimizing where you're not the same and compromising where you are the same. Oh, sorry, optimizing where you are the same and compromising where you're not the same. Um, and so there's a, it's a whole process of trying to read one at a time. I always like to start with the personality. So um, there is, five basic personality traits that every person has. And by the way, um, this is the only personality science that is actually backed in academic research. Um, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC, those are not based in academic research. They have not been able to replicate those findings. And a lot of people tell me, you know, I've taken DISC or I've taken um, Myers-Briggs and I just, I, you know, I, I don't think that fits me. And that's because it's not 100% viable. The only personality science that's actually viable, and used across many different organizations is called the big five. And the big five, the acronym, as you mentioned earlier, is called OCEAN. So openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, and neuroticism. So that, those five traits and deciphering those tells you not only a lot about a person, but also how you should be interacting with them. So um, depending on what kind of relationship you want to have with them, it's about Treating them as they would want to be treated rather than how you would want to be treated. I like the golden rule, but I don't love the golden rule. I much prefer the platinum rule. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. So, you know, one of the things that, I, uh, that that's really interesting to me, one, one I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you escalate this conversation so that it does become, you know, this stronger bond between two people? Um, you know, and, and how do you get people to to bring their guards down, um, so that they are they're, they're actually open? Because you know, like there are moments when I, I feel like I'm you know not having any chemistry with somebody you know, for the life of me, no matter how much I try. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, okay, I, I interview people, I should be able to drill people for questions with no problem, and I can. <laughs> at moments, I'm like, if I would d- use my you know interviewing skills in my dating life, maybe I would be better at it. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm just really curious how you know you, you get to this you know deeper level of conversation. Also, you know, you, you talk about this idea of being uh, the most memorable person in the room. So I'm curious how that happens.
1: Yeah, well, before uh, you actually brought up something really interesting, which I do want to address, which is um, the idea of trying to please everyone or trying to be liked by everyone. Uh-huh. Ex- it, 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 in, instead of trying to appeal to the right person. Um, and there, I think that how people respond in the first five minutes, or the first five hours Tells you a lot if you want to connect with them <laughs> on a deeper level, yeah. right? And I think that, um, and this is, a, this is a, a, an issue, for, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people in business where they, they feel like they want to appeal to everyone, right? They feel like, you know, you're an interviewer. You, want, you should be able to get these questions out. Unfortunately, I think we forget that sometimes those people are not the right fit. And trying to get them to open up actually might build a relationship where you don't want to have one. And this is happening before, and I've regretted it each and every time. Where I am, I am really trying to get to know them on a very deep level. I'm asking non-default conversation sparkers. I'm asking five whys. I'm getting to know them, and it's a little bit like pulling teeth. Okay. It's working, but it's a little bit like pulling teeth. And I still keep going. I go. I'm going to read their matrix. I'm going to find out their personality traits. I'm going to figure out their appreciation language, and and I do it right. I'm able to solve their cipher. Have their matrix down it wasn't fun. Boy oh boy, was it? <laughs> it was not fun. Um, and you know, I, I learned a little bit about them, but whew, it was a personal challenge. I did it undone. Sometimes, most of the time, you find that those people then are so excited to connect with you again, but you're like, I never want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually built relationships where I should have taken early signs to realize, you know what? Like maybe we're not a fit. Like yeah. maybe this is actually not a fit. So that would be the first thing is if that me too is going and you're not finding a lot of me twos, <laughs> you're really like working at trying to get them or you're not getting a lot from the why like, uh-huh. maybe they're not your people. I'm like, that's okay.
2: What role does intuition play in all of this? And I'm just really curious because I I went on a date recently with somebody and, you know, I mean, it was a perfectly nice day. We hung out for like three or four hours and went to a couple of different places. But at the end of it, like I couldn't help but want like I I was left with this sort of question of like, do we really have any chemistry or did that all just kind of happen by default?
1: Okay. Okay. So what you're talking about is actually the most dangerous kind of relationship. And that is an ambivalent relationship. (laughs) Okay. Yes. And so the the research has found that actually we talk a lot about toxic relationships. And I have a whole chapter on difficult people and and like toxic relationships. Uh We talk a lot about that. What we don't talk about is ambivalence. And ambivalence is far, far more dangerous. It actually takes more mental energy and space. And they did this study with police officers. Um, This is a real high stakes career, right? Like you you need to be able to trust your partners and the people you're working with. And they interviewed police officers on their relationships, on their team, and they were real closely with their, with their team and their squad. So they found that most police officers have, um, friends and relationships, which, which are relationships where you're not sure where you stand. You're not sure if you like them or not. You're not sure if they support you or not. They're in that in between. And then they have, I won't say enemies, but kind of people that do not like toxic mm-hmm. people. They found that the police officers with the most toxic people in their squad were actually happier and did better at work and were more productive and took less sick days than people with more ambivalent relationships. In other words, and that, that is counterintuitive, ambivalence, people we're unsure of, mm. are actually far more toxic than toxic people because toxic people, we know we can't trust them. <laughs> right. We know we don't want to go to lunch with them. Yeah. Whereas ambivalent people, or ambivalent dates uh. or ambivalent colleagues or ambivalent friends they ask you for a second date or you know she texts you and says hey like let's you know you want to go to brunch this weekend and you're like do i <laughs> should i and then all week long you're like oh like do i you know do, do i really want to should i have better plans on saturday you get up saturday morning and instead of being excited for it you're like God, I think I would prefer to sleep in, but I really (laughs) should go. That is the most misery producing kind of relationship. And so I think that the, what we're talking about, people passing your me too's or your intuition about ambivalence, Uh is actually much more important than we, than we think. The other aspect of intuition is I think, and again, intuition is a real fuzzy term for me. So I have a little trouble with it. Uh (laughs) Um, when we're talking about intuition, I actually think we're talking about um, our spidey sense, like our lizard brain. Sure. Um, our lizard brain operates without us knowing, and it actually is working on very concrete things, not um, fuzzy indicators. For example, there's a study that was done with first-time skydivers, and what they did – I love this study. I, I would not have wanted to be in this study, but I love reading it. Um, They had – First time skydivers wear um, sweat pads like underneath their armpits and run on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. And they took those sweat pads and they put them aside and then they put them in another suit, put sweat pads in and pushed them out of a plane, you know, took them up in the air and made them skydive for the first time. Um, and they sweat a lot. And what they were looking for was do the adrenaline fear sweaty pads create different responses than the sweaty just working hard pads. And what they found was they had participants smell these pads um, in MRI machines and looked at their brain activity while they smelled these different pads. And what they found was is that when people and they didn't know, right? This is a blind test. They had no idea what they were even smelling.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: When people smelled the fear sweat, they themselves in their brain activated the fear re- regions in their amygdala. They began to began to feel more afraid. Whereas when they smelled the other one, they did not. Mm this in this is intuition i think we don't know what we're smelling when we smell someone we don't understand really pheromones from a conscious perspective but if you have a bad feeling about someone or just it's not fitting there is not a chemical fit there is not a hormonal fit there is not a pheromonal fit and that is what i think intuition is and so when i feel that way with someone i try to think like what is it that i'm picking up on my lizard brain is picking up on that i don't really like I think that's what's more helpful.
2: You know, that's really interesting because, you know, there's there's part of me that, you know, kind of like, you know, do I like I texted this person back and I was kind of like, and then the part of me, you know, I I knew that I was traveling for three days. When I came back, I was thinking, I don't think that there's any point in continuing to try to to push this along further because it just doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere.
1: Yes, Yes. And I think you probably saved yourself months and months of like bad dating. Right? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, those relationships where you're someone's with someone and like, it's not a bad relationship, but it's also like, you're like, I just don't see it for them. Yeah. Yeah those are the most dangerous kinds. I don't mean to like yell at you guys. I'm sorry. I'll calm down. <laughs> calm down. It gets me real upset. It gets me real upset. Like you know, you 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 care about your friends so deeply and so when they're in those relationships, you know that they're just in it because they're settling and uh-huh. that's that's where you get people who get married and they're settling. That's what happens. It starts with that kind of ambivalence, that bad first 5 minutes.
2: So, you talked about personality. I want to talk about appreciation language and values. Can you define those and explain to us how we uncover them?
1: Yeah. So, appreciation language, you're actually probably pretty familiar with. It's um, the only part of the book that sort of um, was another popular science, which is uh, Dr. Gary Chapman's Mm -hmm. Five Love Languages, but adapted for appreciation. So, it's this idea that we all feel and express appreciation differently. So after you know someone's personality, it's also important to know how do you show them appreciation. And um, Dr. Chapman's model has not only been replicated, but also is the most um, reliable one. So you have the five personality traits, the five appreciation languages, and the last one is the six value languages. And this is one that is not as popularized, but I want it to be. That's my goal. It's a great set of science um, that's based on um, research by Dr. Foa. And what it basically says is that as humans, we cannot help but want to share and give resources. And we typically are geared to get resources that we don't have enough of or we didn't get enough of as a child. And so I promise we won't get into too much psychoanalysis, (laughs) Um, but um, it really helped me and it's helped a lot of my students think about what are they trying to get out of their relationships, Uh out of their professional relationships, out of their social relationships. And it's a different way of thinking about that final level of the ring, that final part of the matrix. The deepest thing is what we get from people we're with. Uh
2: Okay, so let's, um, there's one other question I wanted to ask. And I knew this was because I know you you mentioned a section on this about how to be the most memorable person in the room. And I'm curious what the answer is to that question.
1: (laughs) Okay, so if I had to pick just one, and I do have, you know, there's a couple hacks in the book, but if I had to pick one, it would be to know how to work the room. Uh So um, I don't know if anyone else has this. But when I would get into networking events or parties, I would sort of be faced with three questions. Um, Where do I stand? what do I do and what do I say? Uh-huh. Those were like, and, and it would sort of freeze me. Like I would get to an event and like pretend to check my phone and like, hide in the bathroom um, because I just didn't know what to do. And I, and I, what I realized was there was the same thing happening over and over again at every event. And so what we did is we partnered with a couple of local organizations and we asked them if we could map out their networking events. So what we did is we went into each event and we put four, cor- four cameras in the room, one in each corner we tagged every attendee. We actually like followed them throughout the room. We gave them a pre-survey and a post-survey asking them um, how much they liked networking, how many business cards they collected. And then we also looked at their LinkedIn profile picture. And we found that at all of these events, there seemed to be these super connectors, these people who would walk into a room and even though they started with zero connections, would end up with the most business cards, or had the most connections on LinkedIn, or had the most fun at the event. And they made very, very specific patterns in the room. So one of the biggest patterns that we found is that they stood in sweet spots, um, and they avoided traps. And I think you probably saw this in the book. I actually mm. break down just like a football field. I break down a networking event or yeah. into a map, <laughs> and I actually do this. Um, when I do live events, I actually do this on a chalkboard, just like a, just like a football coach.
6: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and I do love my sports metaphors. Um, and uh, what we found was the sweet spot, the best place to stand in a networking event is right as people exit the bar. So right as people exit the bar, you're catching them in this moment of desperation. The worst feeling in a networking event is you get to an event, you don't know anyone, you put down your coat, You check your phone. No one's texted you. You're like, I better get a drink. You're in line. You get your drink. And then you turn to face the room knowing you're going to have to either cold approach someone or pretend to text someone or do nothing at all. (laughs) And so if you can be the social savior, like that person who is like waiting for them to turn and face the room, and then you say, hey, how's that drink? That red wine looks great. That gives you this, like they're like, oh, thank gosh, like, yeah, this person is my social savior. So that is a sweet spot to stand. In. And that also gives you context conversation sparkers. So you can ask about the wine. you can ask, have you been to this great venue before? How do you know the host? Those are all very casual sparking conversation starters.
2: Uh, okay. So based on this, I had a question that actually came up as, as you were talking about all of this that I just thought of. And that was I'm curious, um, based on your research, what is it that causes two people to fall in love?
1: Oh, oh my goodness. That's a, that's a big question. Um, give me one second. Let me just think about it. <laughs> oh, cause I, I, I want it to be a, a most impactful and true answer. I would say that it's It actually has to do with the resource theory that I mentioned, and it's that what makes two people fall in love is that when one person has an abundant amount of the resource that the other person most needs, Um, that is, I have found, with all the relationships I've seen, all the people who just instantly hit it off and feel like they've met their soulmate and there's a whole bunch of science and soulmates we could talk about that is what it is it's that someone has a lot of their resource they want to give and that fills the other person's most needed resource need
2: so let's keep talking about the science of, of soulmates that you mentioned mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so um, I was very curious. I I hear a lot about soulmates and people, you know, whenever I do dating webinars or dating seminars, I get this question. So I decided to actually look into the science of soulmates. And there is some interesting science. Um, So what they have found is that people, well, first of all, I, I would love to ask you, how many people in the US do you think believe in soulmates? Or I'll say, how many people in the U.S. who are of of dating age, so adults, um, actually believe in soulmates? Not a lot. What would you guess?
2: 20%.
1: Okay, so I I guessed around you as well. So 73% of adult Americans believe in soulmates. Wow. 73%. Um, That shocked me. That absolutely shocked me. Um, And by the way, do you think that more men or women believe in soulmates?
2: Well, given that everything so far has been a shock and I've been wrong, I'll say men.
1: (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I do love surprising science. Um, Yep, 74% of males and 71% of females. By the way, 79% of people younger than 45 believe in soulmates, while only 69% of over 45 do. So um, it's more of an optimism thing. What they found was is that... Your opinion of your belief in soulmates actually affects the, your success of your relationships. And there's a little bit of a soulmate trap. And I'm sure you've heard of um, Carol Dweck's research on growth mm-hmm. versus fixed mindset. The problem is, if you believe in soulmates, you get into this little bit of a soulmate trap. Destiny believers are much more likely to have deal breakers in their relationships. They're also much more likely to be questioning the relationship early on as, is this the person? Is this the person? Whereas non-destiny believers, so people who don't believe in soulmates, are much more likely to be asking the question, could this be the person? Could this work? So it's a, a difference of growth versus fixed mindset, and they are much more likely to work through a relationship issue than someone who believes in soulmates because they feel like, oh, this is this person isn't my soulmate. We're not going to work it out. I'm not even going to try.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And so soulmate uh, believers tend to have much more, you know, one to three month relationships, like they're serial three month relationship daters mm-hmm. um, because when they hit a breaking point or they hit what they perceive as a deal breaker, they don't feel like they should work through it because they believe their soulmate is just out there waiting for them.
2: Mm. Wow. Um, so I want to ask one more question, and that's about difficult people, which I know you you mentioned uh, You know that you dedicated an entire chapter to this, because I think that this is really important. And you know, like there are people in my life who know how to push my buttons, my mom being one of them. Um, and my dad and <laughs> I have <laughs> numerous arguments about this. And he's always telling me that, you know, I remember once I went to see my therapist and my therapist said, you're not going to win these fights. My dad said, you didn't need to spend $50 for that. I could have told you that. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> So I'm curious how you manage this without losing your mind.
1: Yes. Um, so, would you want? To, how do I manage difficult people without losing your yeah. mind? Is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, I also have a lot of difficult people in my life, um, and um, what I have found, and the research backs this up, is that difficulty or difficult people are often. It's just their fear dressing up as something else. And I talk about this in the book that fear is a cross-dresser, that our fear likes to dress up as difficulty. So when people are afraid, they might be bossy. They might be boring. They might be narcissistic. They might be gossipy. Um, and what I found is, is that if I take the fear as it's dressing up, like just, you know, I stop at the bitchiness or I stop at the boringness, um, it frustrates me to no end. Whereas if I try to figure out what the fear is, A, it makes me feel a little bit more hopeful, right? It makes me feel a little bit more in control. And B, it can, if I find the right one, it can often get me to flip the person into less difficulty because I have named and tamed the fear a little bit.
2: hmm Wow. Okay. So I have one um, other question about all of this. You know, I've been thinking about this from the standpoint of something I learned from uh, an NLP course that I did a while back. Do you have to think about this consciously when you're um, in a a social situation anymore?
1: Not anymore. Um, So so,
2: that's what I'm curious about. How do you get to the point where this is all just unconscious behavior and you don't even have to think about it?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think um, the learning process is very, very similar to learning a foreign language. So um, I learned Spanish and French in high school, and then I took Chinese, which was one of the hardest languages to learn in college. (laughs) Yeah. um, And I found that it's the exact same step to fluency. So in the very beginning, it's very um, uh, like you're doing flashcards, you're memorizing formulas, you're looking at syntax patterns, you're very consciously, you know, uh, whoa, you know, you're thinking very carefully about each word and you're trying to match it with the patterns. Mm -hmm. After a while, the the first things like my name is, how are you? Those become real easy. And then after a few more weeks and months of trying then the harder ones get better. And then eventually you do reach this conversational fluency where, of course, there's going to be a word that comes up that you don't know, or there's going to be a person that has a really hard accent that you can't really pick up on. It's the exact same thing with people skills, the exact same process, at least the way that I teach it. And I think that I teach it like a foreign language. You know, we have literally micro expression flashcards in the back of the book. Uh So I think the way that I teach it also tends to mirror a foreign language. Wow.
2: Um, What's been the impact of this work um, on the lives of of, of the people who have been exposed to it? Like what kinds of outcomes have they seen in their lives because of it?
1: Oh, gosh, you know, it's been incredible. I save all those emails in a special inbox in my um, Gmail. And what's amazing is that a lot of people like me, I think, feel like, they were watching or interacting in life in standard definition and all of a sudden it's been flipped on to high definition where they can read people better, their uh, relationships are more lively, their conversations are more lively, where everything has become a little bit brighter and, um, and hopefully easier, right? Like, uh, I think people's skills are the social lubrication, they're the glue of life um, and so in that way it seems like that has been the biggest pattern and that's been the best part of this work by far.
2: Wow, really cool. Well, this has been amazing. I mean, we could probably talk for a good two or three hours about all of this stuff.
1: Oh, Uh, days, days, my friend.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I have one last question, which I know you've heard me ask, um, and it's how we finish every interview. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it is someone's ability to stay awake. And what I mean by that is it's very easy to operate on defaults. Uh, on sleep mode where everything is just automatic i think that if we are awake we see more we see facial expressions we see truth we try to get out of our patterns and that is i think what makes everything more memorable Mm,
2: amazing Uh, where can people learn more about you your work and the book
1: yeah, everything is at our, in our labs. So scienceofpeople.com, you can play in our lab, take some research experiments. Uh, we have a bunch of the Science of Soulmate uh, information. And of course, uh, Captivate is wherever books are sold.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.